0: to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our celebration of the One year anniversary of my online clinics. We're marking the occasion by getting together with some of the people who are regulars in the clinic coaching sessions. Last week, you met Connie Dwyer, Taylor Colbert, Dr. Claire St. Peter, who's been a regular guest on these podcasts, Amy Stevenson, Muna Claw, Jennifer Conan, Marcy Ingram, and Svenja Swinski. This group represents a wide range of experience, both with clicker training and with horses. But each one of them is an expert in her own experience. And as you heard last week, they have a lot of great training wisdom to share. We ended last time with Svenja posing a question about the puzzles that clicker training presents when you first begin to explore it. Svenja began her question by talking about balance. So that's where we'll begin as we jump back into the conversation.
1: Very, very small weight shifts that you're causing that then result in this dressage work while standing around. And then there are those traditional people looking at that. And the only thing that is seen is that you're feeding the horse a lot of treats. (laughs) Well, so from the outside, when you're coming from the traditional training, you don't see what's going on and you don't really understand what's going on. And even if you're diving into the positive reinforcement part, it's really, really hard to, to shift the perspective. So, so I remember it was really difficult for me to understand how can I get a horse to move without applying pressure like okay. how the hell do I make a horse move H- how without raising my yeah. hand without having I, a when I don't any... whip? yeah it, it, exactly like like how it was just not it was just not possible for me to imagine It it took me several months to wrap my head around a lot of these things that are kind of upside down to the 20 years that I've trained horses before. And it's, and and here's, I, I actually bring a, a question to the group now, because I'm wondering, are there other things that you can still remember from the beginnings of your clicker training that were similar, like where you really struggled to get to get that old image out of your heads that, that was so ingrained in it. it, it yeah, is, is there something you can you can relate like anyone of, of it, the it, others? That
0: is an absolutely phenomenal question. And while we're giving people time to think of, you know, what was it? So that they're not like a deer in the light of a headlamp. I'm sure there will be people listening to this who are going, Sanya, how did you get a horse to move? You know, you can't throw that out without... <laughs>
1: Answering yeah. The question. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So so I learned a lot about targeting, right? So the first thing that popped into my head was nose targeting, but we work a lot with mats and we work a lot with our body language and with weight shifts and clicking for movement that is not yet a step, but just a weight shift forward, for example. But I think it's mainly for me, at least in the beginning, it was mainly learning about targeting and learning about that I I load something in a positive way that it becomes desirable to move towards something. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's really it really feels like I got trained to lose that because in every other normal life circumstance, that's something very obvious for me. You move towards something where you want to go. Yeah. but with the horses for me that was not an option you you make a horse move by moving your hand up by applying pressure even if it's just even if it's not physical pressure even if it's if it's just about energy or unbalancing the horse like for example you know when you're leading a horse and it stops and you're pulling on the lead and it doesn't move that you don't pull forward anymore, but you start pulling the head to the left and to the right to unbalance the horse. So it has to take a step and then you keep leading it forward. But it but even even these these kinds of applying pressure, it's really hard to get rid of this knowledge when you're learning about clicker training and targeting and yeah,
0: even you know, going back to the, you you know, you knew this in other parts of your life It's moving towards something, but is that really the cultural learning? And I think about the reality for many, many, many people, they get through life to avoid bad things happening. Why do you go to work to earn a paycheck? What does that paycheck allow you to do? Keep a roof over your head. So why do you get up in the morning and move through your day put food on the table and keep a roof over your head. And so for a lot of people, their life really, if you really look at what is the main motivation, it's they are, they are moving away from things that are unpleasant. And occasionally in life, you get to have some treats where you're actively moving towards something or you're a lucky person who has, found a way to follow your bliss, to follow your passion, and that you get up in the morning so excited to move through your day because you're actually working on projects that you love. But for so many people, I think the cultural training is that you're doing this to avoid something unpleasant. And so, of course, it would be the cultural norm that to get a horse to move forward, you use a a crop and you tap him with a crop and you're a nice person you're not going to raise welts you're not going to beat him with the crop but you're carrying the crop and Dominique you have said to me so many times that you've heard the people who say oh you know I just I just carry the whip
1: I just point the whip Mm -hmm. but then you see them
2: it's just uh, an
1: extension of my arm Yep. I got I got that today. So I, I, I took took a whip to move a group of horses out of an area where they were. And I was picking up that whip because so all of the other horses are traditionally trained, right? It's yeah. just my horse that is that is not. So I was moving towards the herd and my stable owner was saying, oh, you got a motivation stick there. And I thought, yeah, I'm not going to go into this conversation, but this this really is is a word we shouldn't use because it it makes you think of something aversive, like it's not that bad or it's even a good thing because, you know, it's just an extension of your arm. You're or never going to do anything. Or else.
0: actually, when they call it a motivation stick, they're being honest. Yeah, it's you true. Know, they're being honest. They're saying... This horse is, is moving because he's motivated to move away from you because he knows that if he doesn't, he'll get smacked. So we're being more honest in some ways, you know, what is, what is the motivation? But when it-
3: usually, no talks-
2: you know, when, when people say, oh, your horse is just doing it for the food, those people- will not admit that the reason why their horse is moving is because they don't want to get hurt or they don't want to be scared they won't be lucid on the actual motivation of their horse they seem to be lucid on the motivation of my horse (laughs) which is getting the food and yet you know we're we're past that well we're never past that because the horses always do want the food but It really feels like they're enjoying the work so much that it really is about both now, the food and the work. But in their case, they'll never admit that there's fear or pain. It's just about the work, right? Yes, he should respect you. And wouldn't it be wonderful
0: if we could create for people a world in which you are moving towards things that you truly want and you get up in the morning knowing that that's what lies ahead of you, because that's what we're trying to create for our horses that we are creating in, within the relationship. The reason that they go forward is because good things are in front of them and they're not running from bad things behind them. And then this also circles back <clears throat> to the conversations that we've been having about balance. So one of the reasons that Darian started to move forward was because he was in better balance. You know, I think about that, the, the comparison video that we did, this was, we were, it was an online clinic, but it was before this new cluster of clinics went on. We did a, I think it was the rope handling clinic, And you, you had a video of the two of you walking across your field to start of the clinic. And he was downhill in his balance. And when he stopped, he stood in that sort of a Higgledy piggledy stance, and then you through the week you worked on the details within the rope handling, and you worked on your own balance. And you sent in a video Thursday or Friday of that week. You sent in a video that just absolutely was astounding. It was I'm looking I was looking at a different horse. He's marching forward. He was stopping square underneath himself when I pulled stills of here's how he was standing in the baseline video, here's how he's standing four days later, it was like, it's not the same horse. It was really fun. So he could move. He could move out of his own way. He wasn't running into himself, which is what so many horses, so many horses, they're not truly going forward because within their own balance, they're colliding with themselves which sounds really odd, but you sort of think about, what is it, the the bumper cars in the amusement park where you you get in and you're crashing into other of these little cars. That's kind of what a horse is like, who's out of balance, keeps crashing into himself. Or you think about a drill team. So the the drill team of the horse is the, the head, the neck, the shoulders and ribcage and the hips, and they're out of alignment. So when the horse tries to turn, he can't turn because there are parts of him that are in the way. So he can't go forward. And then you get out the whip to make him go forward. And yes, he moves, but he's not moving forward with balance. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. He's not happy. He doesn't really want to do this. And when he sees you coming, he'd rather walk the other way.
1: It does not always work either. So so yeah. as I was mentioning, my, my four-year-old daughter, I sometimes bring her into the herd as well. And there's in particular, there's one horse that is, they are all very, very gentle with her. But there's one horse where I really keep an eye on the two of them because I can see that it might happen when he's moving away, for example, from another horse. He might not be able to sort out his feet and not get her underneath while with my horse i know he has learned so much especially in the multiple mats lesson right he has learned so much to balance himself and just move out of the way in the direction he wants to go with rocking backwards his weight and and not falling forward that i i have full trust that he will not Fall over her by accident. There's nothing going to happen that is that is going in that direction. But most of the other horses move very differently, and they do not have that body control because they've never learned. They just, you know, if you're applying pressure, they just somehow try to get out out of the way. But they're not feeling into their body, and they're not learning the self awareness, which means they cannot apply it in in other situations either yes yeah sorry amy i i had to jump into that no that
0: was, that was that was an important statement and i would love to i think that pad that you're describing would be a phenomenal tool for riders but, so amy yeah.
4: jump, jump in what i was just thinking about was not only with the horses who are stuck and they won't go. And you feel like you have to use force on the lead to try to help them to unbalance so they unstick and can walk forward. And I know that's a problem that I have with one of mine. But then the other problem I also have had in the past is that once we do get moving and we need to stop somewhere, they can't they can't collect themselves up enough to, to even stop. And I'm seeing a big difference in that with mine as well now that we have been doing the feeding for balance with the little weight shifting back and they are stepping back so that I can do the exit strategy in the stall. And even just that tiny little component has been really significant for them. You know, at first it was really hard for them to just think, okay, the stall door is open and she has a stall. I need to go forward. When the door opens, I'm supposed to go out and teaching them actually you can stay back in the stall and we can do everything right here. But then also because of my setup, I have to reach around the post for the door and their bucket just hangs on the other side. They have to take a little step back and a little step to the side to get to their bucket. And learning how to do that has made a big difference in the way they carry themselves everywhere else. And so we see- This behavior, you know, these little tiny components, these little skills that they're learning, give them behavioral repertoire. You talk about that a lot in in the podcast, and I love that because I see these little things happening in places where I didn't see them before. And it does make me feel safer around my horses, and it makes me feel less intimidated when they're enthusiastic because if you know if they're excited and they come up into my space can I ask them to step back and this is no. something that's going to become really important with me when I progress with my youngest mare because because we did have a thing this to her stall and and the session so that I could go on to the next horse and I usually kind of ping pong back and forth I'll do five you know, reps with one horse, and then end the session, and then go to the go to a second one, and and do five reps with them, and then that first one has had a little chance to kind of take a break, and we can repeat. And my youngest horse decided she did not want to end the session, and she didn't want didn't want to back up. And I thought, oh, is she having a physical problem that's making it difficult for her to back up? But I thought, well, she was so limber in the morning when she came in. I don't think that she's having a problem in her body because I saw her doing that movement by herself. So it's not that. And I think that I just needed to build some reinforcement for her exit strategy in that particular situation so that she wanted to do it. And it it was a little more, it didn't feel punishing because we were ending the session, even though she always gets an end of session. So I did it. I just repeated it multiple times and really made it important. And then I found when I went back to her, she could back up just fine. And also sometimes if she got confused, which, which we know she has done before, she will actually say, well, I'm not sure what to do. And she's kind of thinking and Rolodexing through her, her limited list of skills that she knows, but that, that skill she can fall back on if she's confused instead of doing some behavior like pushing into me, for example, so I think That's- that these skills, these little components really help with people who feel intimidated, but it takes a little while to teach them. And I am really utilizing the protected contact for this particular horse in a big way because she intimidates me so much when she gets excited. And then i if 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 I don't have that, between us to keep us both feeling safe. I get into clicking things I don't want to do because I'm trying to find a way out of conflict with her. And she doesn't know how to get out of that situation either. So that's what we're learning. Yes.
0: Yes. I mean, you said a number of things that were really profound and that need to be underlined and highlighted a bit and see if I can remember them. First, you're really smart to stay with protective contact for a while with a horse that has been intimidating, that has been scary, that has been confused because you want to train in an environment where you can be a successful teacher. And with that barrier between the two of you, she has the option of moving away and saying, I'm gonna give myself a little breathing space. And you have the option of stepping away as well. And you can be a better teacher when you're working in that kind of a setup and that the foundation lessons of putting backing in, putting head lowering in, going into stillness. So these become, these become so well known that the horse uses these behaviors. I'm confused. I'm going to drop my head. I'm confused. I'm going to back up out of your space. That's so important when we're dealing with uh, even even sweet, well-behaved, easy to get along with horse can have moments that are that can be intimidating just because of their size. So putting those behaviors in really, really important. And then these teaching these little dance steps, we'll call them, how to maneuver in a tight space transfers to other areas. So when you were talking about that little maneuver that your horse learned in the stall, it made me think of a video I was sent a while back of someone who was just starting to explore clicker training. And she showed me this video clip that her trainer was working the horse, trying to get the horse to, it was sort of an agility course type of setup where they wanted the horse to go through a gate. It was fairly muddy, turn and close the gate. And this was done under saddle. And the horse couldn't do it. The horse just could not do it. He did not understand how he was to maneuver his body. And, and I was like, get off. <laughs> Teach the horse all of these component pieces and then go to the gate. But you're, you're starting at the end goal, not at the uh, other end of, this, of the spectrum where you're teaching these small component pieces. Well, you're teaching these dance steps so that when you get out into the real world and you need to ask a horse to move through a gate with you, that's a horse who's going to know how to do it and who's going to know how to do a whole lot of other things as well. So, so Marcy, let's jump to you and then we'll go back to Svenja's question of what were some of the other things that have changed, or that you thought you know different ways of thinking when you, based on the traditional horse background that you may have come with, and that changed as you started to get into clicker training? Because I think that is a fascinating subject to explore.
5: But Marcy, we'll we'll jump to you first. I wanted to go back to Svenia's question. Oh, so, wonderful! Excellent. For me, in the very beginning, when I was first starting, and I don't know if I was reading a book or doing something, I think it was one of your classes and you were like, take pictures of the things you want. Yeah. The, the, the context switch of what, what do you want the horse to do was a journey that took me months. I mean, three or four months. And I was listening to a dog podcast and she was saying, what I want is four paws on the ground. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want four hooves on the ground. And it was just, a, it took me months to get through that. And now I use it all the time, but in the beginning that was really hard. So.
0: so what was, what is, well, cause that's an example that I often use of saying, when you're starting out, you have a horse who's crowding in dews, stepping on your toes, and you're saying, I don't want my horse barging in. I'm talking about teaching the ups are talking. For example, let's say, you know, I don't want my horse barging into me. I don't want my horse stepping on my toes. Well, what do you want? And so you're saying that it was very easy to say what you didn't want. that be correct?
5: Yeah, that was the traditional training. The horse, what is the horse not doing? We're going to, that's traditional. You identify the problem. The horse is not jumping the fence. Therefore, we get the horse to jump the fence traditional approach you you identify where your problem is and you work toward it and but for me the the big you know what do i want from my horse was a was a a journey in the very beginning of training so
0: finding a way of really clearly stating this is what i want was a struggle because there is so much of i can see what i don't want and that's in my face and linguistically, I think we're trained to say, I don't want. That's easy. That's so easy. Often what comes out first is, I'll describe this by giving the non-example. This is what it doesn't look like. So now what does it look like? Yeah. So Svenja, you've got your hand up as well. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because I, I would like to jump in right there because I can totally relate, especially especially with the example of four feet on the ground. So I have two horses. One of them is around 30 years old now. So he's obviously not done the clicker training journey with me his whole life. So I still remember how he was very well behaved. I could always park him in the stable passageway And he would not move. And I could put him there. I did not have to tie him. He was one of those really well-behaved horses. And how did I get there? Over years, I was waiting for him to make a move and punish that. And it was really difficult for me to get out of that. And it's not just knowing what I want with the four feet on the ground. But it's also that I had to get out of that habit of waiting for the mistake that the horse will do to be able to punish that, to show the horse what I actually want. And it's really, really weird when I'm talking about it now. But at that stage, it was very hard for me not to wait for the mistake, but to reward before that, to reward what I wanted, to to not wait for the horse moving a foot, moving it back, moving a foot, moving it back until everyone is so annoyed that they're just not moving anymore. And it's, it, it, yeah, it, I, I can, yeah, I can very much relate. I the, think that's,
0: that's that. a profoundly important statement again. And it also then, you get to the, the four second rule. You know, if you think the horse is going to move in four seconds, stop what you're doing, click and reinforce in three, stop while it's still good. But- I know a lot of people really struggle with that. And you've just explained, you've given an explanation for why. You're basically testing the behavior. You've been trained to break it. Let me stay at four seconds and five seconds, because at six seconds, he's going to move. And then I can tell him, don't do that, is the training. And to to reinforce that three, well, he's not doing anything at three seconds he's only done it for three seconds. Surely he should be doing it longer. I can see that that could be a real psychological hurdle, which relates again, Claire, to the short sessions. How can I ever get anything done if I'm only using five treats? Now, very important statement. So what other cultural changes have you experienced moving into clicker training? I think that's such an important question. Do you remember sort of what were some of the things that tripped you up? So, Taylor.
3: I mean, I think one of the biggest changes for me in sort of a, like, conceptual framework is thinking about a no as not as a final answer, but as a not yet. That we are not there yet, but we will be. And not as having not as the no being some deeply ingrained essence of the horse's personality i think that's a really huge shift in the way that you think about the the information your horse is yeah. giving you no, and
0: what to no do is no is truly just information and that it's our responsibility to acknowledge the no and figure out what to do about it no why is the no there is it That all of his friends were just turned out, and I haven't trained this behavior to that level of environmental change that he doesn't care that his friends have just gone out. Is he saying no because what I'm asking is physically hard for him and maybe it even hurts? Is he saying no because he doesn't understand what I'm asking him to do and I just need to break the training down into smaller pieces and teach the component skills? What is this? information telling me so it's sending us on an exploratory path it, it's not sending us into a brick wall which is i think is really important and so Sven, yeah I, I
1: yeah that's really important for me that a no or something that does not work is just information so i would always beat up myself on how bad a trainer I was. And actually my husband says ever since I switched to positive reinforcement training, I'm coming home from the stable in a happy way. And I used to come home telling him all those things that didn't work. Like I I should be able to do this or my horse should be able to do this and it doesn't work. And now I'm just treating those situations as information they they actually happen a lot less as well and i have to focus on the positive and the good things that's that's a huge change but also really take things that might feel negative to me as information that just makes me explore things more and try to figure out a different way this is this is something that is also helping me coming back to the stifle issue conversation we had in the beginning because it helps a lot with horses, with physical issues where they give subtle no's. Yes. But what you can do now is you can go and try to figure out where can I get a yes? How can I get a yes? What do I need to change? And it's given me a whole new repertoire and also like a whole new emotions, treating no's and yeah, difficult situations just as information. This is this is really
5: important.
0: It's so liberating, isn't it? Yeah. It, and it gives it gives these horses who do have physical issues, maybe active injuries, that who might otherwise either be forced to work until they just can't, and they either break down completely or they explode and they hurt somebody. Or or they're just so difficult or not fun to work with, that they end up just being pasture pets. It gives us a whole expanded way of interacting with them. And they aren't discards. They were never discards. But they certainly are not discards that we can work with them in a way that is meaningful, that is helpful to them. And who knows where it can lead. We know from ourselves, when you've had an injury, our bodies have just such enormous capacity for healing. If you give yourself half an opportunity, we have an enormous opportunity for healing. And so do the horses. So Taylor, you've got your hand up.
3: I just, Svenja, I just wanted to agree with what you said about like the, the changing from a no to not yet mindset also totally applies to how I feel about myself in my relationship to horses and that I certainly still can be very hard on myself and I certainly have moments with my horse Theo where I'm like I don't know what I'm doing with this horse and then sometimes I have to be like I don't know what I'm doing yet I will figure it out and my horse is only 10 so I keep telling myself I have 25 years to figure out what I'm doing with him so we'll get there we will figure it out
0: so so what were some of the other cultural changes that, Claire, what, what comes to mind for you? Because you, you come from a long-established horse background.
6: I think one of the pieces is, is thinking about fitting into communities. And this gets to a conversation that we were having earlier about, I think, the, the dominant horse training methods are still largely based on aversive control and When you are out places, I think being a good ambassador for clicker training, right? Like I I felt like I put a lot of pressure on myself to have a beautifully, perfectly trained horse anytime I went anywhere because I wanted to be that good ambassador for what clicker trained horses could do. And to some extent... I've had to shift my mindset about that a little bit. I still want to be a great ambassador. So that's not that's not the the piece that is shifting. But I think being okay with showing people a different way and kind of coping with the, this might not be how you train your horses, but I don't have to train my horses like you train your horses either. And we can still get along and yes. we can still be part of a horse oriented community. And that it's being able to interface in those situations where you might be the only person or one of just a few people who is using clicker training or positive reinforcement and and starting to have conversations with people about why I've selected to use more positive reinforcement techniques. And that is particularly challenging for me to avoid all the weeds and also particularly challenging because people lecturing me about the science doesn't go well. And so I think that's been a shift for me.
0: So what kinds of situations have you found yourself in? where people are trying to explain to you the science behind what they're doing. Can you share a little, some of those, those stories?
6: I want to hear that too. (laughs) Well, I think, so I am invested in equine welfare. And so that means that, I have interface. There's a major therapeutic riding center. That's about a mile and a half up the road from me that uses more traditional training techniques. And I have rescued several of my horses from a statewide rescue organization. I volunteer for them and not always do all the people like know what my background is. You know, like I show up and I'm a volunteer at the horse event, like all the other volunteers, at the horse event, except that I'm interacting with horses differently. And you know I, I've been lectured about ethology and and boundaries and boundary setting with horses and why you need to shove this horse away, and that positive reinforcement approaches have not been shown to work, but I also think that some of that actually comes from the from the clicker training community. I think you know sometimes the clicker training community will make broad statements about the use of aversive control and say like and this is science based and I sometimes want to go like, but where show me I think. people overgeneralize. And that's been a hard thing for me to not snip back about. Like, actually, you know, it is, it is okay to slide up a lead rope, right? Like not everything has to be entirely at liberty. And even if there is a piece that momentarily involves a little bit of micro extinction or a little bit of negative reinforcement, it is actually really challenging to draw bright lines between some of the quadrants in some circumstances. And I think people sometimes try to impose more of that than actually exists.
0: And yes. So that's
6: been a challenge. Yes. And for
0: practical reasons, we choose to put halters and leads on horses and we choose to get on their backs and that involves tactile communication we have what is potentially a restraint device a halter and lead rope and the question is is never are we putting a halter and lead rope on a horse but it's how are we teaching that horse how to respond to the communication system it's a hunker rope does the horse regard it as an aversive, unpleasant you know that you've used that hunker rope to shank him and and inflict pain to keep him from barging forward? Or have you used it as a communication system that's been taught carefully and well using small steps, positive reinforcement? It's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. When we take our horses out in public, things will often look different and it's okay. I remember this was years ago now. I did a, a demo at the equine Fair, and four of my clients took their horses. So they, they were going to be my demo horses for the presentation. And they had a ball while they were there. They had their horses in the back barns and the back parking areas where there's all this activity and other horses and so on. And they would take their horses out and they'd be leading them. They'd have their lead in one hand and their mat in the other. And whenever something that might be a little unnerving for their horses, because these were, these were not horses who were used to showing. So these were not horses who were used to going places. So going to the equine fair was a big deal. And whenever the horses looked a little worried about something, they just plopped the mat down on the ground, and their horses would stand on the mat, put their heads down, and all would be well with the world. It looks different. And so it's okay if it looks different. And it's okay if we go about solving a problem in a different way. We can be good ambassadors, but we do have to be careful how we talk about the work because you know, we talk about traditional training or the training that we knew before, but I want to be careful about not pushing against where somebody is or what somebody is bringing into the clicker training. I certainly brought in quite a, a large tool chest, you know, toolbox of a horse experience into my clicker training experience. Some of it I discarded right away. A lot of it I have kept and just transformed or softened around the edges but much of it has been useful and i learned from some very 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 good negative reinforcement trainers very skilled negative reinforcement trainers but i want to go back and work in the way that i learned years and years ago without the benefit of clicker training no But I certainly appreciate what I learned. Yeah, Dominique, you had your hand up a while ago. What were you going to jump
2: in with? Well, it was back to the questions about the change of culture. So for me, I guess it was the biggest change was not going to labels to explain behavior, even nice labels. You know, there's not there's not not always the bad labels like aggressive and disrespectful, but sometimes there are well-intentioned labels like timid or scared horse. And so becoming aware of when I use label to explain behavior has been very, very helpful for me. And to look at, and and it's all around us. We hear it all the time. You know, that's how people explain why a horse or an animal is doing what it's doing. It's because it is a certain way. So to rather look at that particular behavior right now in the in this context and look at reinforcement to explain the behavior rather than labels has been you know even when we're talking breeds we you we we hear it a lot you know this breed in dogs we hear it a lot but even in horses we do you know you'll hear and Muna, Muna would probably not agree but that draft horses are you know rather cold and that the Arabs are like this and Even in in the horse world, we do use labels in terms of, of breeds, and certainly I'm not saying that there is no influence coming from the breed, but we did an episode on nature versus nurture debate a while back, and there's much more coming from the environment than and the history of learning than we would yes. think. So I think for me, that was the biggest, probably the biggest change in culture was to not use labels to explain behaviors.
0: And one, one of the big labels that we put on horses is the conformational label. Mm. You know, and yeah. the, well, he's just not built so he can do this. I remember, this really goes a long way back but a hunter-jumper trainer was, we were watching uh, several of the school horses and he said to me, so which horse is going to have a smoother gait? And um, I'm looking at the horses going, this is, this feels like a trick question. (laughs) What What am I supposed to answer? And there was one horse who had very long pasterns and it's a thoroughbred and he had the long sloping pastern and the other had short, upright pasterns, quarter horse. And so, well, you know, the the horse with the short upright pasterns is going to be much choppier. He's just going to be a more uncomfortable horse to to ride because he's got these short pasterns. Well, what I've learned is that it's tension that makes horses hard Mm -hmm. to ride. That when you have a horse that is very tight in his body, he is going to be very, very choppy. But when you can work with him in a way that he starts to let go of that tension and he starts to pick himself up. So instead of falling forward and down onto his front end where he's pulling himself forward over the ground and instead he learns to pick himself up and suspend, then all of a sudden that horse can feel like you've died and gone to heaven and that he's, he's just Floating over the ground, and you'll hear the difference. You know, you'll hear the pound, pound, pound when he's tight. And then you work with him in a way where he begins to suspend up. And now he's moving over the same ground, and you don't hear him. So I think the conformational label that we assign to horses is a real trap because it keeps us from reaching for the change that is possible.
2: Yeah. Yeah that's what labels do you know they just close the doors to any possibility they're a dead end you know it's a little bit like the not yet we were hearing before you know which opens up everything labels do the opposite they close down any opportunity to change the situation it's too bad because you know it's that, it's not what it is.
0: It may have been yesterday's news, but it's not today's reality. Mm. Yeah.
2: And so. you, you hear, too, you know, oh, he's such a brave horse. That, too, can be very dangerous. Yes. You know, the, the brave horse that knows right from wrong and all these other very romantic labels, too. Yes can be quite dangerous. I mean, a horse that knows right from wrong, that's a slippery slope. A very
0: slippery slope. Hmm. And uh, another one, and, and Taylor, you'll, you'll relate to this, is the rescue horse. Oh, he's a uh, rescue.
2: He's been beaten all his life, that's why. Yeah. And, that's and, it, you can't ask him that because he's been beaten.
0: Yeah, and that, that label can, is, can be so very sticky. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are things in a horse's history that, particularly when you are first beginning to work with them, that you want to be very aware of because that, in part, how you stay safe. But that label of he's a rescue, I found that to be incredibly sticky. And I'll have horses that were in clinics where this horse will be described as a rescue, and you'll say, Well, how long have you had it? Oh, 20 years. I I think at at some point we need to add refresh perhaps change that label because that that may be how you got him but there's been more to his life experience than just that horrible start and I think that's important to remember and I see Amy's got her hand up but Taylor, that since we were talking about rescues, why don't you jump in first and then we'll jump back to Amy.
3: No, I was just going to say that, that that's, it's so interesting to hear that perspective on rescue horses. So in my previous experience, when I was in the dressage world, there were no rescue horses. They were all fancy, for the most part, fancy warm bloods imported from Europe and some Lipizzans that I, I worked with and there were no rescue horses there. So really my only experience with rescue horses has been at the rescue. And of course they're, they're all rescue horses there. Yes. So a label is not, not a helpful label. It's like saying he's a horse. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to hear how that has come up in in other contexts as something that persists in a, in a fixed way. that it, it indicates something about their behavior because the rescue I met has close to 200 horses. And we just have every range of completely unhandled to, you know, been there, done that, you know, totally handleable Uh, and everything in between.
0: And you'll have horses that were rescued because they were beaten. Yeah. They have that life experience. You'll have horses who were rescued because they were starved. That's a completely different life experience. You'll have horses who were rescued because they were part of a herd of 20 who were just out in the field, never been handled kind of thing. So to put it all into one label is ridiculous. 200 horses, it's a study of one. And it is a lovely and wonderful thing to get an animal, whether it's a dog, a cat, a horse, you know, a goat, whatever, from a rescue, because that opens up a spot for another horse that needs that spot. But then we need to look at the study of one, who is this individual? What are his needs? What is in repertoire? What are the behaviors that I need to be careful about because they are in repertoire? And what are the behaviors that are missing that I need to teach? But it's a study of one. And I can feel good because I've helped this individual. Actually, I've helped two individuals. I've helped this individual that I've brought to my home. And I've opened up a spot for the individual that now can move into that opening at the rescue. But I need to be careful about the stickiness of the rescue label, you know? So Amy, what your hand's been up for a while.
4: I just had a few thoughts that came to my mind listening to what people have said about labels and how their feelings have changed about going to the barn and what they're doing, and how they talk about it when they come home afterwards, and how it's changed to say it's more joyful. And at my barn, when I had other people around, in particular, she shouldn't be doing that at this age. (laughs) And it made me feel bad, because I thought, well, her behavior is just she's being a normal baby, and she doesn't know what she should be doing. But then I felt like I had to somehow adjust that or hide it or protect it or you know all the things we do as humans to kind of make our environment easier more livable for us around these judgment statements but when I don't have anybody at my barn right now except for me and my husband and I can approach it more as a study of one and get rid of all of that judgment. Yeah, adding the judgment statements onto the whole labeling thing would be my contribution to that part of the conversation as far as things that have changed from a traditional mentality.
0: And it's actually a really good addition coming on the heels of the stickiness labels. You know, so if, if I have a horse who is a rescue and I refer to the horse as a rescue, in part that's a protection for me because it reduces the shoulds. Because if I've bought the fancy, well-trained, trained professionally horse who's now giving me a hard time and I can barely ride him, then you know, where does that leave me? But if I have, if I can say, well, he's a rescue, then people, you know, then he's doing great, dear. So in part, keeping that label just helps me to have breathing room. And I, I think what we need to recognize is why are we keeping the label? What does the label? serve what function does that label serve yeah so behavior
4: has a function right all behavior has a function and and that's part of the questioning that I find myself doing not just why did my horse do that instead of saying my horse shouldn't do that or they should be doing something else it's they did this behavior I wonder why they did it And how could I help them find a different behavior, but then also applying that same thinking to myself. When I see myself behave in a certain way, why did I do that? What function is it serving for me? Is there a way I could do this in a softer way, a more emotionally balanced way for myself so that I am giving my best to my horse to help them be more emotionally balanced. And that is also new. I, I know somebody, and I can't think of, who it was that said it because so many amazing things have been said but just you know it's it's just changing how I feel when I come home from the barn and things I'm saying the way that I'm talking about my horses and my training and how I feel about myself and it's it's adding to my own behavioral repertoire
0: yes and sometimes the function of that label is to be able to talk about this is where we were and this is how much I have learned and worked through to get where I currently am. So, you know, I started with an aggressive horse. I started with a rescue horse and this is what I've had to to learn in order to be successful with that horse. There's a element there that of feeling good, of having that label make me feel really good because I wasn't starting with a clean easy slate I was starting in a really deep hole that I had to climb out of and I'm proud I'm really proud that I could climb out of that hole so you know labels labels are complex so Svenja you have your hand up
1: yeah, so so one thing I want oh. to add is Amy just said, you know, about the what's the function and thinking like applying that to ourselves as well, but also going further and applying that to the people I'm living with and I'm working with. I like making this a habit, asking myself what's the function of the behavior that I'm seeing is really helping me be more patient and but i'm now i'm lacking the english word but like being more open for people behaving in a weird way mm. like where i would think why is that person doing that that's totally stupid instead of thinking that i'm trying to figure out what might be the reason behind that? What's the function of that behavior that that person is showing? But actually, I, I wanted to to jump back to, well, give a give a little story on what Dominic said about the labels go in both directions. So it, it we're usually trying to talk about negative labels. But one trap I fell into, I think it was one and a half or or even two years ago now was I thought of my then like eight year old horse. I, I really wanted to be this really good horse trainer and I'm doing baby steps and i'm I'm looking at this horse that is a study of one. And he has not been out of his barn really in in the last, I don't know, two or three years. So I want to start out going for walks with him again. And I'm going to build that in really tiny baby steps. So I went with my fitness watch and I thought this is this horse that has been, well, has not has much environmental change. And I really have to start very, very small steps with him. And I was tracking, okay, that one day I went 500 meters and then went back again and i was really paying attention to the trail i was going as well so i would go the same track back and forth because then it's not so many new impressions and i was i was really trying to be careful there and i got a lot of rearing and i got a lot of i i got a lot of behavior that i don't really want to see next to me i felt very very unsafe and it it actually became worse usually at the point where I would turn around. And I couldn't figure out why. So my reaction was, I wanna be a good horse trainer and I have this horse and I've overwhelmed him. And this is, I I really need to take a step back. And I never like got any further. Like the behavior stayed the same and I kept getting the rearing and I kept getting very frustrated emotional behavior until i figured out that he actually wanted to go further so the problem is and it is until today that i need to go at least 3 kilometers or more than 40 minutes until i can actually turn him around and he's okay with me walking back to the barn and please not the same way as before please make it a make it a circle but it but it took me like a lot of time to figure out what the problem was because I had put that label of the of the horse that doesn't know anything and now needs to be like really taken care of like I I had to put that picture in my head and it it really wasn't helpful in finding a solution to my problem it's a
2: wonderful wonderful study of one example yeah it's a great story you know I find that the for me, it being aware of label, it's not that I never use them anymore, because, you know, I'm sure I use them a lot. I
0: use labels
2: to communicate. Yeah, oh. but, but even, you know, the kind of labels that, you know, we were talking about aggressive or brave right. or whatever. It's just that being aware of them, I think, has made me more precise in my way of thinking and looking at the situation. So... I might still say you know I'm getting these aggressive behaviors but I'll I'll make an effort to really identify the circumstances in which yes. this happens instead of saying he's an aggressive horse you know I'll say well I get rearing in this situation so I'll try to become much more precise and that of course helps me to develop a plan but I think that's what, what it has done for me is that I'm being more precise and instead of just saying, well, that's just the way this horse is, now I'm I'm looking at it, you know, in terms of, like I said before, yeah. the context, the reinforcement, et cetera. And, and so it, it's given me more precision, I think, in my way of approaching problems and looking at things.
0: Under these conditions, mm-hmm. this horse presents this-
2: This behavior.
0: This array of behaviors in order to get yeah. and I whatever, would,
2: distance
0: I, or... Yeah. And I would label those behaviors as aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, just as a convenience. And
2: um, reactive, you know, that's something yes. you'll hear a lot in the dog world. Oh, my dog, he's very reactive. Not all the time. When he's right. in your living room, he's sleeping and he's not reactive, you know? Yeah. So I think it's it has helped me be more... In tune with trying to find things to explore more. Yeah. And of course it
6: has forced me to
2: learn more. <laughs> yes. So Claire, jump well, in.
6: I think, yeah, one of the things that I've I learned early on working with educators is that if a teacher refers a student for me because of aggression, right? Like this is an aggressive student, I can't presume anything about that student when I walk into the classroom because Some teachers will mean this is a student who is going to take his computer and throw it against a wall. And other teachers will mean this is a student who is going to hit another student. And other teachers will mean like this is a student who's going to call somebody a name. And what the student is actually doing in the context in which they're doing it is wildly different, even though the educators are all applying the same label to Mm -hmm. the student. And I think the same thing is true. With all labels, you know, it's getting to what you were just saying a moment yeah. ago, Dominique, that when we say that you know, a horse is X, this is, this is a lazy horse. This is a horse that has more go than woe. Like what, mm. what does that mean is probably different for each person who applies that label. And that makes them harder to use systematically.
0: And even saying this is a horse who has more go than woe doesn't really mean anything why and when under what yeah when yeah yeah all the time yeah so the more we begin to see that this is not something that is inside the animal that but that is a function of conditions then we add a deeper meaning to those statements
2: yeah and Um, you know when you see the horse who supposedly has more woe than go and then you change rider not the same thing at all. (laughs) There goes the label, right? It may be humbling for the writer, but (laughs) it's a nice example of a label that is not very useful or accurate.
0: So then I wanna circle back to where we started, which was this whole question of horses with physical issues, because this seems to me to be, talk about a label, (laughs) but it seems Mm -hmm. to be a big bucket that a lot of horses fall into. is indeed a very big bucket. We're about to begin a discussion that I know is all too relevant to a great many of you. What do you do when your horse has a physical issue? That has to affect your training. Are you just stuck because you don't want to ask your horse to do something that might hurt him? Or is there a role that training can play in these situations? How do you keep moving forward while still protecting your horse? Those are some of the questions that we'll be exploring next time. So again, if you want to learn more about the online clinics, do please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. And if you have any questions about the clinics, you can always email me directly. I want to thank again everyone who participated in this panel discussion. Connie Dwyer, Taylor Culbert, Dr. Claire St. Peter, Svenja Sawinski, Amy Stevenson, Muna Jennifer Conan, and Marcy Ingram. Thank you, everyone. Next time, we'll dive into the discussion of what to do when you recognize that the difficulties you've been encountering in your training may be rooted in a physical issue. How do you keep moving forward in your training while still protecting your horse? That's what we'll be looking at next time. And next time as well, I have a really fun announcement that I'm going to be making. But I'm not going to say anything more about it. You'll have to wait until next time to find out what it is. So until then, train well and have fun with your horses.